episode 355, The Five Business Models of Digital Health Companies. Today, I speak with Nikhil Krishnan. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. My guest today is Nikhil Krishnan, who is the founder of the Out of Pocket newsletter. I was talking with Nikhil and we identified, or more accurately, he identified five business models of digital health. What makes each model distinct is a few factors. If you weren't in the healthcare industry, you'd probably expect that I'm going to say that the biggest factor a business model must hinge on must have something to do with patient outcomes or care, something that has something to do with the hopes and lives of patients. Except no, mostly our models do not define themselves by attributes of their patients, except on one dimension. Who is paying their bills? Who is paying has enormous downstream consequences that I don't think people outside of healthcare or even people inside of healthcare sometimes really appreciate. It's because of all of the perverse incentives. It's a tangled web we weave. For example, let's just say you're a startup founder trying to cook up your unique selling proposition. You can't just decide you're going to lower costs and improve patient care as general constructs. Because let's just say you do that. That's your USP, lower costs and improve patient care. And then you try to sell your thing to Medicare Advantage plans or large provider organizations. Oh, right. Medicare Advantage plans or even commercial ones, they don't care about the total cost of care. Neither do provider organizations unless they take on sufficient risk to care, and many do not. In fact, as came out in that JAMA article the other day, link in the show notes, it could be construed that entities such as these carrier health plans have a perverse incentive to see total costs of care go up. Up. So right, you naively, you're the startup founder again in this case study, don't forget, you naively trot into some administrator's office with a great something or other to reduce total costs of care, and you'll get cast out upon your petard on the quick. Every single day of the year in my world, I see people make the same mistake over and over again, not tailoring their product market fit to any particular market, with the recognition that some in this healthcare industry have a vested interest to see costs going up and some have a vested interest in costs going down. Either way, if we're talking about large organizations here and even some small ones, the money wins over patient care. So sad to have to say that, but listen to episode 351 with Dr. Eric Bricker and you'll get all the context you need on that point. Here's the thing, though. I don't know about you, but I can't tell you how many digital health startups I run across where I look at their decks or have a conversation with the founder and I ask who their customer is. Is it employers or health plans or question mark? And they don't know. They're going to figure this out later. I don't get how to successfully do that. I'm indubitably wrong here, given all of the pivots I hear about that seem to go okay. But the prospect of completely redefining my operational goals and operations and market positioning at some point in the future seems like a daunting and avoidable prospect. I would be remiss not to mention, however, the number of really good mission-driven healthcare companies out there really trying hard to figure out how to create sustainable businesses, a fair profit, while at the same time serving patients really well. There are companies adding value commensurate with the dollars that they come by, and I certainly applaud everything that they are doing. At the same time, given all this, here's a message for all of you VCs and private equity, etc. 
people with money out there. Let me quote Dr. Vivek Garg here. This is at VargMD on Twitter. If you're financing care delivery without a board level focus on clinical outcomes, you're part of the problem. So let's talk about these five business models that health and healthcare startups eventually settle themselves into after they figure out who their customer is. Nikhil Krishnan, my guest today, and I discuss how they can be financially viable and if we think they'll actually be able to provide superior patient outcomes. Trumpets play here in no particular order. This is what we've got for our five business models. Number one, completely avoiding incumbents, creating a cash pay ecosystem. That's number one. Number two, Better middleware, being the pipes, as I've heard so many times these past couple of weeks. Number three, companies serving incumbents, either by being a virtual front door for them or disrupting the competitive landscape somehow. Number four, joint ventures. Number five, old school digital health who are now incumbents in their own space. My guest today, Nikhil Krishnan, has a bunch of things going on. He might be best known for his newsletter, Out of Pocket Health, which you should certainly subscribe to, link in the show notes. He's also working on a Healthcare 101 crash course to teach newcomers about the Wild West we call American healthcare. Besides all of this, Nikhil does some early stage investing. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Nikhil Krishnan, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat. Let's discuss the different models of digital health. And there's a lot of talk right now about digital health and how this intersects with the pandemic. So this is probably amazing timing. Let's tick through each of the different models of digital health. Number one, business model that entails completely avoiding incumbents. So some kind of cash pay, something or other. Mm -hmm. How would you define that? What's going on there? Yeah, this is probably the easiest one to find. These are basically companies, I think, that are just really focusing on the cash pay ecosystem. This, I think, has really grown in the last five years. And interestingly, there's like the premium luxury version, and then there's the uninsured market version of this. You have your company that may be selling branded generics, like your Hims, your Row, et cetera. But then you also have companies providing more accessible cash pay medication rates, like GoodRx, for people who are uninsured and trying to get their meds under without even touching their deductible at all. The cash pay ecosystem is really trying to take advantage of this consumer sentiment that everything's really complicated, everything's really expensive. I would pay extra for a simpler version of this of service that I need. And I think the cash pay ecosystem has really leaned in there and it's mostly primary care related or single transaction related. I think there's some interesting stuff around areas like direct primary care where companies are really trying to build more longitudinal relationships with patients. And even a lot of these direct-to-consumer pharmacy companies seem to be trying to shift a single transaction to a more longitudinal relationship. But yeah, it's mostly cash focused. It's you really got to win the consumer over and it's trying to avoid insurance altogether. As you were talking there, I was thinking to myself that in a way, this cash pay ecosystem could probably be hived into maybe three categories. Cash pay for luxury or convenience, that's number one. Cash pay for cheaper prices, that's two. And cash pay for better care, which might be number three. In the number one zone, the cash pay for luxury slash convenience zone, 
You've got Roe, which patients could just go to their doctor and probably get the same thing. So it's probably, and this is a question, which I'm stating as a not a question, but it's a convenience play. It's just like easier to go online. I think convenience is one. I think stigma is another, right? Like for a lot of people, they don't want to go talk about their erectile dysfunction issues with their primary care physician. And also, frankly, it's just sometimes really hard to get an appointment with your primary care physician. And this is way easier to do so. I do think there's also another version of this, which is even if you've been taking a medication for a long time, and let's say you maybe move states or change insurance or whatever, to need to go back in person to get a lot of the refills, et cetera, done just seems like overkill. This falls into the convenience bucket, but these can just an easier way to do that. You really want to lower the friction as much as possible to getting them to start treatment. These are people who have the luxury to pay cash for something that they, they could, in air quotes, use their insurance. But then, as you mentioned, because you've got the, you can actually get this at a lower price version. The number two, cash pay business model, like your good RXs, maybe sidecar. I don't know if you'd put them in that category. And then you also have the number three, better care. Like people who really want a relationship, they want to feel like they're being taken care of. And that's where I'd probably slot the direct primary care. Yeah, yeah. I think it's funny. It's like a lot of people want to bucket themselves in the better care category on the cash pay side. But for a lot of for a lot of this, we just don't have longitudinal outcomes for a lot of this to compare. I think at the very least, though, it's about establishing an actual relationship with the patient. That's a bit more I don't know, high trust. Yeah, that's probably where the direct primary care falls in. OK, so we just talked about number one, which is a cash pay model. Here's number two. How do we basically create almost middleware. There's this new term that keeps popping up, which is pipes. You've written about mm -hmm. this. You want to talk about that one? Yep. Yeah, I think it's interesting. It's because the VC-backed startup slash care delivery ecosystem has gotten so large, it can now support businesses that basically only serve new care delivery models. I think no matter how much efficiency you bring to the patient-facing side, inevitably on the back end, you actually run into a ton of incumbent players that kind of ruin all those efficiency gains you made on the front end. There's a lot of, lot of companies now who are basically trying to better solve those roadblocks piece by piece. And a lot of them also are alumni of these care delivery companies who saw the issue firsthand and then went to go start it. For example, like I've invested in a company called Candid, which is doing easier bill submission to clearinghouses slash insurers. That's just a process that sucks for providers right now. It's just a mess. And they're using a lot of different kind of new technologies to make it easier. And you have lots of different versions of this. I'm just giving one. But if you look at the kind of stack of software or even people that providers have to use on the back end to either gather information, help display information to patients, etc., there's a lot of kind of gaps and missing pieces. And so you have this whole wave of API-first companies that have been created to fulfill those needs. You have TruePill to do pharmacy fulfillment. You have Ribbon to have provider directories, like I said, Candid to do billing submission. So there's a lot of, I just think, much tech-first new approaches to these problems. Ribbon, which is doing provider directories, sure, they like pipe in whatever more accurate provider data into your application. But as you, the end user, start verifying whether a provider is correct and et cetera, it pipes data back to Ribbon so that the, so that the product on Ribbon side actually gets better 
for other customers as well. So I think that's actually important to like understand that you need to have a kind of bi-directional data flow that's passive, right? Because for a lot of, I think, companies or providers, they'll have people do this, right? And if you ask a person to not only whatever, update the provider directory on their side, they're not going to go back into a service provider and re-update that data back on the service provider side manually. So I think having an automated kind of bi-directional data flow is really important here. There's just a huge wave of kind of building better backend infrastructure for these companies. Yeah, it's, you know, I think you raise a very interesting point given the data silos, which are rampant in this industry mm-hmm. and, and cause problems that we all know are big ones, frankly. So effectively what I'm you're shocked. saying... I'm shocked. This is the first I'm hearing of it. I'm certain. <laughs> I just read about it this morning. But the point being that by aggregating these backends or middle sorts of services, then all of these probably smaller companies, interestingly, might wind up with a better data set in aggregate because the middleware is collecting all of their various updates than potentially some incumbent. Yeah, it's totally possible. One part of this is if you're building for a use case that assumes better interoperability, then even just the way you structure your data, ingest it, et cetera, looks very different versus I think healthcare's one of healthcare's original sins is that every solution deployed has been a custom solution for the end user. EMR is being probably the, the number one example there. But if you build thinking, hey, listen, we're going to have a centralized, structured version of this from a lot of different customers that's in a standardized format, we can do more interesting things down the road, then you build very differently. I will say, though, which is the thing I'm interested in just watching develop, when a lot of these companies realize how valuable their data is, it's unclear also how, I don't know, willing they are going to be to making it easy for third parties to access as well. A lot of startups today also worry about things like patient leakage and all that kind of stuff, same way that a provider would. Just, I think, I'm interested to see how they navigate this going forward of being a interoperable company that is friendly for patients to port their data in and out, but also trying to make sure that they keep patients in their ecosystem. When they figure out the value of their data, it's going to be a tug of war between the mission-driven portion of their value prop, so to speak, and then the financial one. So we'll see whether some of these startups turn out to be, let's just say, a little bit more patient-focused maybe than some of the incumbents and where their fiduciary responsibility takes them. Yeah, it's worth noting that there's different types of data sales and data interoperability. And so you can, if you're selling de-identified data in an aggregate uh, whatever, mark, data marketplace or, or data broker, that's being used for a very different use case in a lot of cases than things that patients would see. So it might be used in the back end for identifying physicians who have certain prescribing behaviors or might be used to identify, I don't know, like when treatments are switched from one to the other. But it just needs to be directionally correct. It doesn't need to be specifically correct. Versus if you want to, pay, if you want to be able to port data from one application to another, patients basically initiating, that's a very different kind of use case. And there's not really, it's not like there's a business model for that. This is just something that would be good for patients. So I think that makes it tricky because if you do a de-identify data sale, it's very beneficial to the person who owns the data, but being able to let 
data be ported from one application to another because of a patient is not beneficial to them. So I, you know, I think that's going to be, that's why I think you, it requires legislation to allow for that. And that's why we have the interoperability rules and ONC has been pressing their thumb on the scale here to push for that because it's really not in the best interest of any individual party. They kind of have to force it. Which is funny because that's the whole point of an API, right? So you get these companies that their business model is their API, but then they're like, we're not going to use it for some things. And I think in fairness, I think a lot of the API first companies a lot of them are trying to provide either like really back-end services that probably aren't super useful to patients. Like what is a patient going to do with direct access to a provider directory? Like more likely than not, they're going to interface with it on another application that they're using or an API for pharmacy fulfillment. Like again, like directly patients are not going to do much with it, but through another application or service that they're using, they probably would. All right. So moving on. Number three. Companies who are serving incumbents, and by incumbents, what we're talking about, and most people who listen to the show probably know the big PBMs or the big health systems, maybe, or the big carriers, the Buka plans, Blue Cross, United, Cigna, Aetna, Humana, who are the startups who are serving these gigantic entities. I think this was probably the first wave of any digital health company was targeting these large players because contract sizes are huge. They need to build a lot of new tech capabilities and all that kind of stuff. People who are selling analytic solutions or selling a lot of point solutions to solve specific workflow pain points within them. And I think the reality of the situation is I'm personally just not a huge fan of startups that are like selling to these large incumbents. And there's a few reasons why. One, I think they're just the universe of them is just really small. And so unless you're the person who gets in, then that channel gets saturated pretty quickly. And then the other thing is also just that for a lot of these companies, I don't think selling tech to large incumbents is going to move the needle in healthcare. Like they're not going to rebuild processes from the ground up. Their business models are very focused in fee-for-service or rebates or whatever the like, you know, thing that has been dominating for the last 50 years is, and they're not going to meaningfully change that. So you basically just have companies who are coming in and offering to do the do that, but marginally faster, maybe, or with can enable more volume to pass through, et cetera, which I just don't think is that interesting, frankly. And I think it gets that channel gets saturated pretty quickly. But the contract sizes are huge. You can be a company that sells one or two of, the, of these guys and basically be riding high. So, yeah. yeah, I agree with your points. If we're thinking about this from a patient or even a doctor or any of the other types of, of healthcare workers perspectives, on one hand, from a business model perspective, it's a whole lot easier to sell to one carrier than to try to convince however many employers who aren't interested Mm -hmm. in talking to you anyway, for example, to purchase your product or to go after the Medicare Advantage market, which everybody has obviously realized what Don Berwick Mm -hmm. called it the other day, the money machine. So anybody trying to cash into that money machine, get that till drawer to open in their direction. I will say that one one area that I think is exciting is helping sell into, I call them incumbents, but really old school, the, the traditional business model that you see for small, medium-sized businesses and help them transfer to new business models. So for example, Alidaid, who's helping primary care groups transition more to value-based and, and different kind of CMS models and take advantage of that. I've invested in a company called a pair team, which is helping a lot of 
Medicaid-focused primary care clinics take part in value-based care models. So I think there's actually, there is something about helping smaller versions of companies pivot into new business models. I'm mostly talking about these like large Fortune 500 size, Fortune 500 size incumbent trying to sell into them or get them to turn their business model is just impossible. And then also one thing that seems to surprise everybody who is trying to sell anything to, for example, a carrier dealing with the self-insured and insurance market or Medicare Advantage, like they don't care anything about total cost of care. If you go in with the total cost of care message, they're kind of like, what else do you have? Considering that the majority of Americans, I think I just read the other day, are delaying care due to cost. This is not something that if we're thinking about from a patient perspective that we can overlook, that you have these incumbents who honestly have a business model that is bolstered by increasing healthcare costs. And one of the promises, at least that I see for some of these smaller entities is their ability to reverse that trend. It's like a really dark and twisted thing when you realize that one, most of the existing healthcare companies make more money the sicker you are, right? This is not really shocking to anyone. But the thing that I also think is really weird is that these companies, most of them are actually getting extra money for the more expensive stuff. So that makes maybe more sense for hospitals. Like it's maybe more intuitive. Oh, you need more complicated surgeries. Like you'll probably end up getting more money. The thing that I think is weird for a lot of people is if you look at payers, for example, because of even how medical loss ratios work, where they you know, can only keep 15% or have to pay out 80 to 85% in claims, they are optimizing for the 15% they can keep. So they actually don't really have a huge incentive to negotiate prices down. And I think now with a lot of the new price transparency stuff, you can actually see how bad of negotiators they are in a lot of cases, even worse than what you probably could do as an individual negotiating cash pay. Or PBMs, for example, negotiating, but you think they're supposed to negotiate better rates for drugs, but for more expensive drugs, they get more rebates. And so they're more incentivized to actually push people towards the more expensive drugs. So there's just such a convoluted mess in the back end that I think the average patient maybe thinks that they're buying when they're going to health insurers, et cetera, they're like buying access to their group negotiated rates when that's actually not true. The incentive misalignment because of the core business model really just like messes that entire thing up. Anyway, I think for at least some of these new companies that are maybe trying to go at risk earlier or really building from the ground up in you know, capitation or total cost of care models, they at least are just, they're building at least something new. And by the way, what you were just talking about relative to many of these incumbents are incented to see prices go up. There was just a big JAMA article the other day, which I talked about in episode 352 with Dr. Eric Bricker that actually validated that with math. So let's talk about business model number four, which is joint ventures that work in tandem together. I think as a digital health ecosystem matured, I think a lot of companies tried to figure out what their core competency was. And for a lot of them, it was not distribution specifically. And so I think for a lot of people, a lot of companies, they viewed joint ventures or you know, par- partnerships as a way to take advantage of the best of both worlds. They're them being good at things like R&D and actually product and then relying on a much larger company to help with distribution, have their brand name associated and use, uh, utilize their sales force. Some examples might be 
Verily doing joint ventures with a lot of the large pharma companies, large med device companies, pair doing pair therapeutics, doing digital therapeutics company, kind of commercialization partnerships with large pharma companies. I think the thing, I actually don't think that this is impossible to pull off. I definitely think it is. But what I have seen is that it is really complicated, I think, for companies who are supposed to be the distribution angle to distribute a totally novel product if it's not as analogous to the existing products that they normally sell. So an example is if you look at Pear, they are selling a digital therapeutics product, which looks very different than a drug. And I think that their original, I think their original partner was Sandoz, which is focused on generics. Like a novel digital therapeutic looks, is a very different sales and distribution process than a generic drug. And so I think, and then even when you see Verily working with Onduo and Sanofi being their partner there, I believe Sanofi actually pulled out the really, the novelness of these care models and the novel, the novelty of the products themselves, I think make it really difficult for a lot of those companies to really understand what they're getting into and what, if their value proposition actually aligns with this new business. So I don't think it's impossible to pull off. I actually think it can work really well, but I think it's just, I think it was way easier, I think, before you actually hit the commercialization part to, to see how that might work. I think that it probably works best if it's something that either, you know, for example, when a health system works with a payer, I'm just talking about this from a business model situation, not necessarily from a provider or patient standpoint, and they both get a Medicare Advantage contract together and then share the savings. So there's a common goal. Both of them have their unique capability and they put them together and then both share the rewards. Or if it's like a product that's being exchanged, there's some distributor who is purchasing to your point, like generic drugs at a discount so that the generic drug manufacturer can share in the distribution savings and the distributor can always have a line on the best priced generic drugs. Like I think those things tend to be frictionless and I don't mean without friction. I just mean relatively speaking. I think where you get into trouble is if you have two gigantic or one gigantic organization and then the small startup and it's a culture clash, number one. And I think one of the things that both forget is that to work together is a very strategic, it requires a lot of strategy. And sometimes I find myself in the middle of some of these conversations. And I think that is, is something that both really neglect, that they are think about things in their own silos. They do not think about how it's going to affect or be received. Like communication is all about what someone hears, not what you say. And, and I think that's something yeah. that is universally overlooked. I'm very curious. A lot of the partnerships I talked about were a little closer to the pharma side of the things. But I think right now you see a lot of partnerships that are focused way more on the payer and provider side. A lot of these health plans offering virtual health plans in tandem with a virtual primary care provider or a lot of health systems basically working with companies that are doing more patient engagement solutions. I think that's new right now. Him's part partnering with the Ashner Health System or United and Galileo basically doing virtual first health plans. There's a lot of, I think, diff different kind of experiments happening. And I'm just curious to see how it works out because I think that's like a little bit more of a culture clash that, that and anything else, but we'll see how, how it plays out. I think maybe companies have actually figured this out after years of seeing other companies experiment. I certainly hope so. But if you buy the popcorn, I'll, I'll watch with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Fifth business model here that we'll discuss today. Old school digital health who are now incumbents in their own right. 
Yeah, I guess this is like less of a business model and maybe more just like a observation that a lot of these companies now, your Oscars, your SockDocs, Castlight just got bought, Flatiron. I think a lot of them, they had to build a lot of their own stack, like tech stack and services, et cetera, themselves, because it was at a time where digital health was a very new thing. And now a lot of them are pretty large and you can actually build companies way faster even today with some of the new API services that we talked about before, but also just because the, the ecosystem has matured so much. So it's just interesting to see a lot of them, first of all, become customers and acquirers in their own, but also just that it's just such a different time. Like even a lot of those companies now feel like there are new challengers coming to try and replace them. Indeed. And they probably do have their own and different challenges than the upstarts. Like, for example, as you just said, they have an older tech stack and they're competing in the market in a sort of different way. So it will, I agree, be interesting to see how the dynamic plays out between the really big incumbents versus the upstarts versus some of these maybe middle children yeah. who, who are have a foot in both camps, really. Actually, some of those first those first wave digital health companies like your Oscars and all that kind of stuff, they may actually be even be more palatable acquisitions for a lot of companies that maybe want to bring more whatever tech talent into their companies for the larger Fortune 500 incumbents than the really small, tiny, not proven out companies yet. PillPack was acquired by Amazon. Flatiron was acquired by Roche. Not only do you kind of get tech talent there, but if you want to actually expand into new business lines or buy a book of business, some of these might actually look more attractive than the smaller companies. So... Time will tell. Let me ask you this, Nikhil. So somebody said this coming out of JP Morgan, and I was kind of thinking this myself the other day based on a couple of conversations that I have had with a couple of different founders or people who work at startups. If you ask them about their business model, or even to a certain extent, if you ask who their customer is, who's going to pay for this? You get this like stare that's somewhere in between squirrely and blank. And then they can't answer your question. So I'm not sure if they can't answer your question. Like they, it's something that they haven't really thought through clearly or they have thought it through and they came up with six ideas and they haven't yet decided or whether yeah. they honestly don't know. Yeah, it's funny. If you go to a startup's page and they don't have the case studies or a four hospitals for payers tab. That's when I know I'm like, oh yeah, they're like still figuring it out. Like they're not totally sure. You know, I think the thing that's hard for startups is their solutions are in a lot of cases broadly useful for a lot of different use cases, but there's a lot of feature specific stuff that they need to target one channel at a time. And so I think a lot of them try to build the core product that they believe is useful first and then try and see who would find it beneficial, valuable, etc. and would pay for it. And then a lot of them will come up against the, the unfortunate reality that like maybe X person actually does care about this generally, but there's a lot of feature specific stuff that they need to add to make it broadly useful. Yeah, I think a lot of companies just struggle to figure out who their core customer is. It's not a, and for anyone listening to this, if you're starting a company, you're not the only person to go through this. I think a lot of a lot of founders really struggle with this, and but they maybe will do pilots with different org types to see where the like real pain point is versus where it's like a nice to have for those people, and then try and double down on one channel or one or two channels. Sometimes I wonder whether 
where it's a really hubristic naivete, like some very smart engineers who really think they understand this incredibly complex market and at a very fundamental level, they do not. I will say that I think that the experimentation path has just gotten much faster now, like for new. And again, my goal is to get new people into healthcare. So I always encourage people to, you know, come try experiments, see what works, what doesn't and whatever. There's like a, the term idea maze, which is trying to hit on a bunch of different ideas until you find the one that kind of stakes and works well. I think actually the ability to go through the idea maze is way faster now because so many previous people have tried the path before that you can come in, experiment with one business model you think is good or product you think is good. And there's now like a whole host of other people who have already tried it or other even people at Fortune 500 large incumbent companies that have seen so many solutions like X that you can get feedback way quicker versus I think if you started five, 10 years ago and you tried to pitch X thing and you were so new to the market, like no one really knew what to do with you. So now I just think you can come in and you can learn much faster. And again, yeah, this is like what I'm trying to do. If I wrote like a whole white paper called the six stages of health tech grief, which is the most common businesses I see pitched, and I'm just trying to explain what's really difficult about those businesses. You know, I think I see like a personal health record pitch like every other week. It's like the very common thing when you come into healthcare to be like, yeah, EMRs suck. Like we should build a patient first health record. Okay, let's at least look at the past failures of this and why they failed. You can be the judge of whether this time is different and why, but it's worth actually just taking learnings from prior companies. So yeah, of course, I think there's a lot of people who come in and they're like, oh, I know healthcare, like I can fix it. But I think they, I still think that there's a lot of room for newcomers to come in with fresh eyes to tackle some of these problems, which I think is, which I think we should encourage and is good. Yeah, absolutely. I would definitely, I wouldn't want to be discouraging to anyone. I, you just don't want people to run into that cognitive bias. I forget what it's called. Like Steve Jobs had it when he invested heavily in Segway that went nowhere. Because if someone is very good at something, they tend to believe that they're very good at everything. It sounds like someone has not gone on some of these cool Segway tours in other cities. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Those are fun. Apparently my life is not complete. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, you know, Steve Jobs missed hoverboards, which, you know, that came a few years later. That's really where the segue shined. <laughs> That's true. I mean, he was just ahead of his, his time. So, Nikhil, talk a little bit about Out of Pocket, your newsletter, and about the course that you're currently building and where people can find them. Sure. So, yeah, I'm building something, building Out of Pocket. It's outofpocket.health for um, any of you who want to check it out. I write a newsletter each week or a sort of deep dive into a different part of the healthcare industry, of my thoughts on the trends and all that kind of stuff. And I have a course coming out that is a healthcare 101 crash course to teach newcomers to healthcare, the basics of who the big players are, how they make money, the how they interact with each other. I also do some pre-seed and seed stage healthcare investing. So for companies who are trying to build some cool stuff in healthcare, uh, hit me up. And yeah, you'll see more stuff coming out soon. I think the field is wide open to help teach people how healthcare works. And I do it in like the most shitposting-y way, which I think is hard for the existing people to replicate since they're so buttoned up. But yeah, if you want to like learn how healthcare works and crack some jokes along the way, check outofpocket.health. Yes, I definitely would second that. Definitely check outofpocket.health. Nikhil Krishnan, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, 
you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.